Welcome to Role Playing History, the podcast where we explore the history of role playing games. I'm Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide for today's tour. Episode 115 Birthright. Okay, so I promised you two shows this week, and I'm going to keep my promise. Well, except for those listening in on YouTube. You only got one show last week, and this is the one scheduled for this week. My apologies for potentially misleading you on that one. Since I chit-chatted a lot in the first episode for this week, I think we just need to go ahead and crank up the tour bus and get into the topic. Birthright was designed by Rich Baker and Colin McComb and released for 2nd edition Advanced Dungeons & Dragons in 1995. In his 2009 retrospective article on Birthright for Pyramid Magazine, Matthew Pook noted that Birthright was the first setting to support PCs as rulers, as it provided players with a game based on, quote, diplomacy, politics, trade, construction, and, of course, war, end quote. In his book, The Evolution of Fantasy Role-Playing Games, Michael J. Tresca noted that Birthright was at least in part inspired by Tolkien's Middle-Earth, noting it was, quote, a universe profoundly influenced by bloodline, nation-building, and war, end quote. So let me take a moment to translate all of that. Birthright is, at its core, a game where the PCs are rulers of some portion of the world. They're also considered to be divinely empowered, so the concept of bloodlines plays into all of this as well. As I noted, this is the first time a D&D setting specifically set the players up to be rulers from the start. Sure, a group of PCs could ultimately become lords of the domain in other settings, But that required a lot of gameplay, as well as coin, power, and influence. For Birthright, the influence part is assumed up front, and the intrigue of politics and all that comes with it are as important as the battles that are fought. Needless to say, the Birthright setting is completely different from anything that had come before or that has come since. Expanding on the bloodline concept, the divine powers I mentioned moments ago were to be passed along to the PC's descendants, and while that was expected, sometimes it didn't happen, and that could be a political thing of its own. There's a few more points on the basics that I need to get to, but let's finish the history first. Birthright was supported as a setting for four years, and during that time, five boxed sets, 21 accessory supplements, five adventures, Five books, a comic book, and a computer game from Sierra Online were produced. Wizards of the Coast discontinued the line after purchasing TSR, but one more novel came out and it released in 2000. However, Wizards didn't completely wash their hands of the setting. In 2005, for the 10th anniversary of the setting, Wizards announced the release of a free web series of published and unpublished products. There was also a version of Birthright that was constructed for use with 3rd edition D&D, but that was handled by a group of fans online working collaboratively across the internet and was rewarded by Wizards as being named the official fan site of the setting. Just drop in a Google search if you're interested in checking it out. One more history note, Birthright won the 1996 Origins Award for Best Role-Playing Supplement of 1995. All right, so what should we cover next? Geography, campaign world history, races? We're going to get to all three of them, so don't panic. We're just going to start with campaign world history, then we'll get to the other two for those of you keeping score at home. Oh, and I've been asked a couple of times by folks outside the U.S. what the phrase for those of you keeping score at home means. 
Some of my favorite baseball announcers of all time used to use that phrase, and it was intended for those baseball fans who'd be listening to the game on the radio and literally keeping score inning by inning from home. It's just stuck in my head, and I like to drop it into the show from time to time. So, now you know. Let's get into the history of Cerulea, which is the continent on which the birthright campaign takes place. And for the record, Cerulea is located on or in the world of Abrinus. In the beginning, Cerulea was inhabited by elves, dwarves, and goblins. Humans made their way there from the southern continent of Aduria, and they left there because of the corruption caused by the dark god Azrai. Now, much as it was in the history of our world, these immigrants had cordial relations with those populating the land when they arrived, which were the elves in this case, but those relations soon turned adversarial as the humans encroached further into elven lands. Sound familiar? The dark god Azrai wasn't just sitting on his hands, though. He gathered his armies and headed for Cerulea, bent on conquest. Those armies were made up of a variety of minions, a group called the Voss, who were a tribe of humans he'd managed to corrupt, and the Elves, who were pissed off at the humans for taking their lands and causing the battles that had broken out in the intervening years. The human tribes on Cerulea didn't back down, however. They and their patron gods met Azrai and his band of not-so-merry men at Mount Dysmar, which was located on the land bridge between Aduria and Cerulea. Now, note I said was located. We're getting to that. The battle commenced, and it didn't take long for the elves to realize Azrai had basically played them. Then they decided that the enemy of my enemy is my friend, so the majority of them switched sides to work with the human tribes of Cerulea. Now, regardless of what side anyone was on, the battle was fierce. While the armies fought on the mountain slopes, the gods decided to layeth the smack down upon each other. And it didn't take long for the gods to realize something. The only way they could beat Azrai was to sacrifice themselves. So they did. It was one hell of an explosion, destroying Mount Dysmar, the land bridge, the gods, and most importantly, Azrai. So if the gods ceased to exist, how do we get the divine powers we talked about earlier? (laughs) I'm so glad you asked. Even if you didn't ask, I'm still glad you asked. The power of the gods shot out during the explosion, entering those present on the field of battle. Now, those who were the closest in both physical proximity as well as ideas and virtue got the most power. They basically became gods themselves, so a new pantheon rose up to replace the one that had just yeeted itself into oblivion. Some of the other combatants got some of the divine power, but they quickly realized something. The power was now in their blood, and if somebody wanted to steal it, it wasn't going to be too hard to take it. These folks, for the record, are known as scions, and they quickly figured out that the blood strength could be stolen with a killing blow that pierces the heart. Like I said, not an overly hard thing to do. These divine gifts the scions got made them very able leaders. It allows them to form a connection to their people and to the land, and it allows them to draw strength from both. Now, while these powers could be used for evil, they use them for good, and they can and do give that strength back to the land and to the people when it's needed. They also perform great deeds whenever the need arises. There are a few more benefits to this divine blood, among them long life, the ability to detect poison, and the ability to project a divine aura. 
Now that last one depends on their bloodline strength and the god that the powers came from. Of course, the good gods weren't the only ones destroyed. When Azurai was blown to smithereens, his powers were handed out as well. Those who got his blood powers tend to become powerful abominations called Aunschlingline in the birthright world, and I jacked that pronunciation up, I know. They are now corrupted, and their bodies will twist themselves to reflect that inner corruption. Quite a few of the major villains and monsters of the birthright campaign are Aunschlingline. The Gorgon, the Sphinx, the Spider, and the Vampire, each with their own little picadillos, though we do know most of the basics, so we're not going to elaborate here. Now that's just a brief history lesson, because to cover all of the history from the various boxes and supplements would take several episodes, and while that would be fun to do, I promised you something else for next week, and after messing up last week, I kind of sort of need to keep my promises. So let's talk geography, since we probably need to understand a bit of that before we start running through the list of races. So the world of Abranus has four continents that we know of, though it's been hinted at in multiple supplements that there might be more. Thali, which is a frozen continent, Japar, located at the southeast, the southern continent of Aduria, which we've already mentioned, and Cerulea, which is the home for the campaign itself. Cerulea is then broken down into five regions, which are named after the major human tribe or group that first settled there. Anwar is located in the southwest. It has a major shipping and travel route that leads through the heartland of the continent, the River Masil. The climate of Anwar is much like that in Western Europe, for our listeners who are familiar with that region. If we're looking for a direct reference to historical locations in the world, there really isn't going to be one. Think of Anwar as a gumbo of medieval England, Imperial Rome, and Gondor from Lord of the Rings. Rajuric is in the northwest. It's a rather sparsely settled area with a plethora of pine tree forests. The climate and culture mimic that of Scandinavia and the Celts. Brechtur is in the north center. It contains what's called the Great Bay, which practically cuts Cerulea in half. The vast majority of the population of Brechtur is located on the shores of that bay, since the realm is exceptionally mountainous. That means travel to the area occurs primarily by ship, which is the preferred method of travel. Brechtur is an analog of the Hanseatic League, and if you don't know what that is, give it a quick Google or Wikipedia search, and let me spell it for you, because I know I mispronounced it. It's H-A-N-S-E-A-T-I-C. Kenasi is in the southeast. It also happens to be the warmest region of the continent. Arid plains, rugged mountains, many islands, and a few deserts are part of that geography. The Kenasi are a seafaring people, and they're not nearly as afraid of magic than people in the other regions are. Kenasi could best be described as a combination of Moorish Spain and Arabia. Vosgard is in the northeast and also goes by the name Heartless Wastes, which just screams vacation spot to me. It's a frigid land, unforgiving, and populated by some of the most dangerous creatures on the continent. Consider the culture to be a lot like the Rus. So with the land covered, let's check out the races. So, the primary races of Birthright match up, for the most part, with any other D&D setting. Humans, elves, half-elves, halflings, and dwarves. That being said, there are a few differences between these races and those either in the core rules or those other settings. 
It should also be noted that there are some races that just don't exist in Birthright. Orcs, half-orcs, kobolds, and gnomes. They do exist as monsters, but they are not playable races. I'll break down the non-human races later, but since humans tend to overrun D&D campaign settings like a plague, let's break them down here first. Humans have five distinct sub-races, which are basically each a different culture. It'll also be obvious which sub-race goes with which continent, even though I'm not doing them in order. Anurian are culturally similar to medieval Western Europe. Think feudal lords, armored knights, that sort of stuff. Halen is their patron god, and his brother Roel founded the Anurian Empire. At one time, that empire took up more than half the continent. It lasted for about a thousand years before it began its decline, at which time the subject realms fought to win their independence and fractured the 12 duchies of Anwire, at least politically. At present, there are 30 different realms within Anwire. Brecht are best known for being both enterprising and individualistic. Their middle class is quite large, and the merchant princes hold a lot of power. They're excellent sailors, and they sail far and wide to trade their goods. Defense of the realms are dependent on a combination of the fleets and the mountains, which, as we said, tend to discourage overland travel. Sarah, the goddess of trade and luck, is their patron. The lands of the Kenasi are sometimes known as the cities of the sun. They're exceptionally cultured and civilized, and both have a distinctly Moorish flavor. Wizards and magicians are held in high regard in their culture, and mages even rule several of the city-states. Magic is much more common and definitely more accepted here than in the other regions. Avani is their patron deity, and Avani is the goddess of enlightenment and illumination. We mentioned that Rajuric is rather sparsely populated. Those who do live here reside mostly in the Rajuric highlands. Druids are a big part of their culture, and they watch over the people and forests. Jarls build and travel around in longships, and there are also some semi-nomadic tribes that are always considering whether or not it's to their advantage to join the more civilized of their people. Eric is the patron god, and he is the god of nature. The Voss once pledged themselves to the god Vorin, who was the old god of magic. However, these were the folks who were corrupted by Azrai and fought on his side at the Battle of Mount Dysmar. Needless to say, their reward was to live in the harshest region of the continent, and that's harshest in both climate and the types of monsters that call the region home. They have two patron gods, Belnik, the god of violence, and Krisha, the goddess of winter. If you're looking for an analog, the Voss have a warrior society based on Slavic culture, at least loosely based. So with the humans covered, let's dip into the non-human races. Elves in Birthright call themselves the Sidhelian. They're based in the ancient forests that dot the landscape. And as one would expect, they tend to be rather antagonistic towards humans, though they also tend to take that attitude towards all other races. If you're using alignment, Sidhelian tend to be chaotic neutral, so that can be fun. They're immortal, immune to disease, and do not require sleep. Now, half-elves are not immortal, but they are the beneficiaries of a longer lifespan than their human parents. 
I mentioned a moment ago how much elves don't like humans. However, when an elf does hook up with a human and produce a child, the elves accept them completely into their society. Humans, on the other hand, not so much. Halflings in Birthright have a rather interesting origin story. They're originally from the Shadow World, but when an evil force corrupted that, they scurried on out and made their way to Cerulea. They still have the taint of the Shadow World on them, and it allows them to cross over to that plane a lot easier than any other race. Dwarves are pretty much the same here as in any other setting. They're gruff, prefer to live in mountains, measure in at about four to four and a half feet tall, and weigh in somewhere between 250 and 300 pounds. The majority of dwarves are isolationists and tend to be rather reserved. Goblins. They are still crude and barbaric, but they tend to be a lot less hated here than in any other setting. They have several large realms that trade with humans. Orogs. They are fierce, militaristic, and underground dwellers. Their war with the dwarves is pretty much endless, and they tend to be at war with every other race as well. I also wanted to note that gnolls and giants are also represented in Birthright, along with a number of other races in D&D. So let's get back into the discussion of what makes Birthright so much different from other D&D settings. I said something earlier about the bloodlines. Something major about those is that any character that has one has an aura of command known as Regency, which is represented in the game by Regency Points, or RP for short. Regency is used to gain a domain, and a domain has provinces and holdings. And as I noted earlier, developing the domain is just as important as the characters improving themselves. And insofar as time goes when it comes to domain, Birthright uses three-month domain turns to model the actions of rulers. Consider that to be just like a combat round, only a hell of a lot longer. Those are the basics, but I can't end this show without expanding on them a bit. I mentioned domains, provinces, and holdings. Provinces are the basic political unit of the domain level. In other words, these are the actual land, population, and natural environment of said domain. Getting into holdings, there are four types. Law, temples, guilds, and sources. Law holdings represent the legal authority of regents in the province. Temple and guild holdings are the religious and economic aspects, as you would expect. Source holdings are the very magical energy that the natural environment contains. For the record, provinces and holdings are described in levels. So, you've got a province. You know what it's got, but you're probably wondering what the province itself looks like. How big it is, how many people live there, etc., etc. The size and shape of provinces isn't a standard thing, and that's because the various published materials don't settle on one. For the most part, they come in around 30 to 40 miles across. And insofar as population, each province has a population level, which is a number between 1 and 10, and it has effects on play. Regents will collect their RPs based on the population levels of the provinces they control, and population level determines the maximum levels of law, temple, and guild holdings in that province. Since they are regents, our PCs can perform what are known as domain actions. Those are month-long activities with a wide range of effects. 
Those include, but aren't limited to, increasing population, creating holdings, waging war, waging peace, engaging in diplomacy, trade, and dealing with random events. A regent can also build castles, muster troops, issue decrees, and establish treaties, among other things. Now, if the regent happens to be a priest or a wizard, they have another thing they can do. They can utilize their holdings, specifically temples and sources, to cast what are known as realm spells. These are rather large-scale and can affect the entire province. They're exceptionally costly, both in terms of gold and regency, so this is not something you would do lightly. One more note here. If war is going on, the regent controls a large number of troops, and Birthright has a mechanic in place for handling that, and it is rather different from what most players are used to. It also has something known as war magic, and that involves the use of what are known as war cards, so if you're going to play the game, you're going to need those. <laughs> but, of course, both the war cards and the Birthright system have been out of print for quite some time. If you want the original version, you know the drill, a good used bookshop or the DM's guild. Now, I'm going to be honest here. I've never actually played Birthright, but I've played with DMs who've incorporated portions of the rules, or at least the concepts, into their own games. If you're interested in being a character who oversees their own realm and love the idea of getting into the minutia of ruling, Birthright might just be the game for you. If you prefer head-on, dungeon-crawling combat, then I'm pretty sure this ain't going to be your thing. But, like I always say, if you're at all curious, check it out for yourself. And with that, we come to the end of today's tour. Next week, we check out the Year Zero Engine. That's going to be a pretty interesting show, and it's going to be a little longer than these two were this week, so you're going to want to check that out. In the meantime, check out our other fine podcast, Bad GM's Campaign Build Along. That show also got two episodes this week, and both our jobs intended to start introducing NPCs that will lead us into the third act of the campaign. Bad GM's Campaign Build Along is available wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, badgmproductions.net. The music we use for this show comes from pixabay.com. Check them out for all your license-free, royalty-free music needs. Role-Playing History is a production of Bad GM Productions. You can check us out all over social media, and the links should be in the information box for this episode. If not, you can find them on our website, badgmproductions.net. Like I just said, next week we check out the Year Zero Game Engine. But that's next week. Until then, I'm Wayne Davis and your role-playing history. <laughs>